All right, let's get started. Ready? Isaiah 8.20 says, To the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, which is a Hebrew metaphor for no truth or light. So today we're going to continue with our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. Uh, this week I turned 60. I was 27 when we started this series. No. <laughs> no, uh, not, no, no, it hasn't been going quite that long. Uh, I wonder if I was. I was probably 58 when we started this series. Uh, so... Um, this, what we decided to do after 70-some weeks, about 72 weeks or so, is I decided before we went on to Elements 7 and 8, uh, the series is titled Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. We have covered six of them so far in about 72 weeks. And so I decided to just do uh, nine weeks of trying to review one of the eight elements every week. The reason there is nine is because we started counting like computer people and put an essential element zero as just the introduction to the series. So we have spent the last three weeks on the introduction, reviewing essential element one, which are the attributes of God, essential element two, the attributes of man, and today we're going to do the Ten Commandments. Now, page one of your outline is kind of a review of all that we've reviewed for the last... Uh, three weeks. So you'll see that three weeks ago we uh, talked about why we're doing this series. And the main thing I want you to get out of that is I want is two things. One is the gospel is for Christians, and we have got to get away from I'm going, sometimes when uh, things are heading a certain way, in order to turn them around, you've got to go extremely aggressive the opposite direction. So like if you're going to lose weight, you can't just like get rid of the cherry sundae or the cherry topping on your hot fudge sundae you've got to change like your entire way of thinking and life and and priorities and everything study food study you know what it does so um it's like that on any subject in life so what we're trying to react to is the gospel has been reduced and reduced and reduced and we have uh, really kind of a 300-year trend on that. But especially in the ha last 150 years, the gospel has reduced, been reduced to four laws and five this and three this. And uh, first of all, it's missing some of its uh, content. And s most importantly, it's been reduced to something that you... Uh, think about one time when you pray to receive Christ, which is supposedly a one-time sinner's prayer born-again experience. And the gospel conversion doesn't work like that, and neither does sanctification or maturation in the Christian life. The gospel is for every day. And the gospel, gaining deeper insight into the gospel, is a way of life as a Christian and the only destination is Jesus himself. So there is no time when you will have studied the gospel appropriately enough. And there is no time when you don't need to think about the gospel today. So um, keep that in mind as we, you know, that's really why uh, we're going into this much detail where we're doing 20-some weeks on, on some of the elements and so forth. 
Also, uh, the reason I'm doing this little nine-part review is we're going to post this as a separate series on, on the website, and I hope you'll use the materials when you're doing gospel-oriented Bible studies with people who are new Christians or considering to be Christians. 90% of uh, the people who've walked in our door in the last 15 years who have grown up in Christian homes know very little about the gospel. Now that number is not an exaggeration, it's probably a conservative estimate. And many uh, convert, many Christians today are actually, if you'll study the history of the doctrines of false conversion, which Jesus addressed in the Gospels, the epistles addressed them, uh, many of the early church fathers addressed them. It was uh, a subject debated throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, it, uh, it became a major subject in the Reformation, and is even a subject still considered sometimes by evangelicals today. You can still find books on true and false conversion, uh, even by various different perspectives, such as Calvinist and Arminians and so forth. So one of the things that... Uh, we're always trying to help people with, and in fact, in Elements 7 and 8, we're going to look at tools for maturing in Christ. In Elements 8, 8, we're going to especially look at a thing called the five vital signs of life. Because if you don't have those, you, you have to go back to the gospel. Don't just say, okay, I need to read the word more. If there's no hunger to read the word, it's not just that you should develop a hunger to read the word. You should really kick the tires around about whether or not uh, you're really converted or not. If there's no um, abhorring of sin in your life and a desire to be saved from carnality and worldliness and that sort of thing, if you just want to punch a ticket to heaven or have a better life or something, then you really need to, to consider whether you really have understood the gospel and been converted by it in, on the inside. So that's, that's the reason we're going into this series. And, and I hope that the Spirit of God will really prick your heart and cause you to consider deeply where you're really at in Christ. And uh, if uh, you know, we're going to try to hammer that home when we get to essential element eight, if we haven't done so by then. All right. So then, in element one, we looked at um, the nature of God, and we also looked at the fact that everyone has a worldview. And we looked at the three component parts of a worldview. That's something you should have memorized as a Christian. Who or what is ultimately real? Everyone has an answer to that in their mind and heart. What is the intrinsic nature of man? And there are three issues with that. Uh, you know, does man have innate value? Uh, does man have an intrinsical ethical nature? Is man basically neutral, basically good? or basically born with a twist or bent toward evil. Almost all fallen men think that men are basically good. If you still think that men are basically good, that's a sign probably that you're not a Christian yet. If you haven't really wrestled with the depths of your own sin, lots of people can see the sin in others. But if you haven't really begun to wrestle with the depths of the sin in your life, you probably uh, are yet unconverted. So uh, we looked at, uh, so that's the nature of man, and then, of course, man in society, which is what we're getting into today. Um, man in society, 
uh, starts with the law of God. The law of God is for individuals and it's for nations. The law of God is for uh, communities. It's for everyone. So flip over and we're going to get into this week's material. Uh, we're going to review element three, which is the Ten Commandments. And we're going to look at some of the multiple purposes of God's law in the Scripture that continue to this day. We're living in a time when a great deal of Bible-believing, so-called Bible-believing Christianity embraces a concept called antinomianism. And Jesus particularly anticipated that and addressed that. And much misreading of Paul and of other New Testament writers has caused the current Christian culture to be quite antinomian. And hopefully by the end of today, you'll know what that is enough that you'll be looking for that, and you'll be able to reread Galatians in a non-antinomian way, and reread Romans in a non-antinomian way, and specifically have that kind of vocabulary in your head. You know, Paul, a lot of Christians today, there's this anti-intellectual thing, and people are like, I don't want to have theological words. But Paul says we do use spiritual words among those who are mature, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. There's no way you can grow up in Christ without obtaining a new spiritual vocabulary. You can, it's, it, it's impossible to do it. You cannot break the law of gravity, and you cannot break spiritual laws. Okay, So one of the things to, to grow in sanctification or grow in terms of maturity, is you need to have a better biblical vocabulary. You can't grow without it. So you should be able to uh, write an essay, at least a half a page or a page, if someone says, what's the difference between conversion and sanctification and maturation? You should be able to to, to uh, sit at the dinner table at lunchtime today and ask each other, okay, tell me the difference between conversion and sanctification. Uh, that's important. So let's get into this Ten Commandments and the multiple purposes for God's law. The first thing I want to talk about is that the Ten Commandments are expressed and defined in various places and formats throughout Scripture. I've listed five of about seven or eight that come to mind. I'll probably mention one or two others verbally that aren't on the outline. First of all, sometimes the Ten Commandments are called the Ten Words. That's how the Jewish people thought of them. And that's why when the uh, scriptures, the Hebrew Masoretic scriptures, were translated into Greek, and in the first Greek translation was called the Septuagint, they were called the Decalogue, logos being the word for word and deca for ten, the ten words, okay? The ten words are first are given to us word for word in Exodus chapter 20, and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, Deuteronomy actually means the second giving of the law for two reasons. One uh, is that um, it repeats the law word for word. So, the, you know, the Ten Commandments, another way of talking about those is the law, or God's law. The craziest thing I've ever heard in modern times is a guy who actually visited our church and then quit coming after I taught him the Ten Commandments because he said that, he said, well, they're not the, the law of God, they're the, they're, they're the law of Moses. 
and they weren't from God, they were from Moses. I'm like, holy cow, what kind of crack have you been smoking? All right, uh, that was the, I, I, that one took the cake. Um, if you can beat that <laughs> for a weird doctrine, let me know. Uh, okay, so the second reason Deuteronomy calls the, uh, is called Deuteronomist, the second giving of the law, is because Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are filled with what's called in the Bible statutes or ordinances. So when you read in Psalm 119 about how I love thy statutes or thy ordinances, what a statute or an ordinance is, is a hypothetical case law. When you study law, you study of course, need to know the Constitution, supposedly. The, so at one time, the, the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were the guiding principles that our laws were based on. That's gone. But, and of course, those are all based on a concept called Blackstone's Commentaries. And uh, probably most people, even probably a lot of lawyers, don't even know what that is anymore. Uh, um, scary. Um, so... The uh, statutes, a case law, is when you say, uh, uh, you know, when you apply the law to a particular case or a particular situation. Okay, so in the Old Testament, it will say things like, if your ox gores someone, that, but it's not been in the habit of goring, and you didn't know that it gored, then you're innocent. But once you know that it gores, if, you're not, if you don't restrain your ox and it gets free and gores someone, then you're guilty of murder because you should have done what was proper to restrain that ox. Okay? So that's a, a case law. Now, the difference between when statutes and ordinances and case laws is just that in the Bible, they're anticipating cases that will probably happen and giving statutes and ordinances, which are hypothetical case laws that haven't necessarily happened yet. Do you know there was actually a time in this country when jurors would take their Bibles with them into the jury box and into the deliberation room to consider which statutes and ordinances of the Bible most pertain to the case they were trying. Just uh, several years ago, this... Uh, a court, a court case was appealed because a juror took his Bible in the in the jury room and referred to it in their deliberations, and the uh, the uh, judge declared a mistrial, saying that was uh, a violation of the separation of church and state, which of course has been, uh, of course, the Constitution doesn't have anything to say about separation of church and state. That phrase first appeared in a letter that uh, Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist. I probably don't have time to go into all that history today. Uh, the Soviet Constitution mentioned the separation of church and state. And uh, contemporary, contemporary Americans, starting in the 1950s, turned around the First Amendment, which actually said that Congress shall make no law with regard to an establishment of religion. That is, Congress cannot have a federally established and supported church. It's been turned around that Christians shouldn't influence government at all. <laughs> and uh, the only secular humanist and non-biased uh, atheists who hate God and, 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 of course, are unbiased and completely neutral. Uh, 
should influence our government. So anyway, let's maybe we'll preach a sermon on that someday. So the Ten Commandments are explained, expanded, clarified in the statutes and ordinances that appear throughout the rest of the Bible. They just tend to be concentrated in certain places, especially in the books of Moses or the Pentateuch. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, the last four of the five. So uh, an example is Leviticus 18 is a whole chapter on what it means to not commit adultery. Because adultery is seen in the Bible as a type of murder. That's why it was a capital offense. Adultery was punishable by death because you were murdering the family, which is the basic building block of society. So when you try to redefine marriage and you, and you destroy marriage and you make divorce commonplace and all the things our culture has done, you're, break, you're tearing down the whole culture. You're murdering the culture. One family at a time. And the breakdown of the family has devastated whole sections of, of our culture, of our nation. Do you know when the Ten Commandments were taken off of school walls in America, 80% of black children in America were growing up in a home with their biological father and their biological mother still in the home. Today, seven out of 10 black American kids are born to a single mother and are being raised by in a single-parent home. Because we've murdered the family by murdering the Ten Commandments. And by our, you know, of course, the, the lifting of the Ten Commandments, uh, preceded by four or five years, the sexual revolution, which is preceded by a couple of years, the, the concept of no-fault divorce, which gave birth to a new culture of divorce. Uh, that we're now entering the third generation of children brought up in the culture of divorce. Where it's commonplace to expect uh, to be passed back and forth between your parents and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, probably none of you who has grade school age kids or older ha does not have uh, some of your kids have friends that are passed back and forth between uh, their mom and their dad. All right, so Leviticus 18 is, is all hypothetical case laws, that is statutes and ordinances. So that's why it has laws against homosexuality and bestiality and, and, and um, I'm forgetting my terminologies, uh, what do you call it, incest and, and all sorts of things like that, okay? Because all of those are what the Bible defines as, as Thou shalt not commit adultery. Fornication, pornography itself is committing adultery. And it breaks down the family and it breaks down the individuals who partake in it. It breaks, it breaks them down and, and it causes one of the things that pornography causes. It causes kind of the eternal childhood of those who are trapped in it. They don't grow up in significant ways. And then they take that they take their boyhood into their marriages and so forth, and and then their wife is married to a boy instead of a man. 
It's a very real phenomenon. Leviticus 23 is all statutes and ordinances about what it means to keep the Sabbath or keep the Lord's Day holy. And so therefore it talks first and foremost, it talks about the Sabbath, but then it goes on to talk about all the other festivals such as Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Weeks, and so forth. So uh, then Jesus and Paul both do the same thing. They clarify and explain the laws by statutes and ordinances. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't think I come to abolish the law, but I come to enforce it. I come to empower you to do it. And then he goes on to, to, to use three of the different commandments. I just listed the sixth and the seventh here. He goes on to say, you've heard that you're not supposed to murder, which is the first of the, of the commandments that turn the corner to how we treat each other. I have to honor your father and mother, uh, which it really has more to do with saying in a submission to God. And so, uh, because all the other commandments, the first always represents the whole. So in, in the commandments, the first commandment, having no other gods besides the Lord himself, all, the, all breaking of all the other commandments is, is always a breaking of the first commandment. When you break any of them, you're always making an idol out of something. Okay? When you break any of the, the commandments that have to do with law and society, the third element of a worldview, starting with thou shalt not murder, all the rest are a type of murder. Because all the rest destroy the image of God and our fellow human beings, devalue our fellow human beings, and bring them down to have no more significance than the products of biological evolution. So Jesus says, you're, you heard you're not supposed to be murder, but I tell you, if you even are uh, angry enough at your brother and demeaning in your heart enough to call him Raka, which is Hebrew for airhead. Anybody ever called someone an idiot? You've killed them in your heart. You're a murderer, according to Jesus. And you deserve to die. <laughs> you do. And uh, so, so we're going to think on that a while. You deserve, according to the, to, to the Lord, if you've diminished your fellow human beings in your thoughts toward them. Critical, you ever had critical thoughts? You deserve eternal banishment from God. The seventh commandment that Jesus says, you've heard you're not supposed to commit adultery. I tell you, don't even have lust in your heart. One of the reasons pornography is so insidious, it's, it's having a fellowship time with the spirit of lust. It's cultivating a, a devotional relationship with that spirit. Spend time with the spirits that you want to have a relationship with. Where would we be without coffee? I think I need another cup. Um... All right, so that's uh, a second way that you see the commandments. Paul uh, quotes the seventh commandment uh, many, 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 many times throughout his writings. And he says, don't be deceived. 
fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, uh, etc., will not enter the kingdom of God. Don't lie to yourself. You can't continue in sexual immorality and enter the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. So, now, point three here on the outline. Oh, boy. Prophets remind and call Israel and Judah back to covenant faithfulness. So, all through the prophets, the law is repeated over and over and over in many ways. Now, I didn't list here the testimonies, but the testimonies have to do with the historical books and character developments that show that God blesses, uh, judges, curses, etc., according to his law. Like, for instance, Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal. They were idolaters. So Elijah brings this point to the fore by setting up this whole test uh, burning, you know, uh, you know, you guys offer your sacrifice to your God Baal, and your uh, versus, um, I'll offer this sacrifice to to Yahweh, and whoever, whosoever God answers by fire, is the Lord. And then he mocks them because they they cut themselves and they call on Baal, and and he says, well, "What is he out going to the bathroom or where is he?" You know, why doesn't your God answer by fire? Because he's just an idol. That's why. By the way, cutting is always rooted in demonic spirits. It's not just, it's not a psychological problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's become a very huge psychological, supposedly psychological problem among young ladies in our culture. And it always comes not from just spirits of rejection and inadequacy and so forth, but it comes from having touched spirits of the occult, magic, witchcraft, which there's, you can get a lot of that in Disney, in lots of places. Uh, horoscopes, seances, Ouija boards. Um, people in our, almost everyone in our culture, because we have such spirits of unbelief about our culture, think, when I ask people, have you ever touched the occult? Almost everyone always says no. And I just, you know, God, open their eyes because they've probably touched it hundreds of times. Cutting is always involved when, when occult spirits have gotten control of a person's life. Thirdly, prophets remind and call Israel back to covenant faithfulness. We started on this one already. So, um, you know, Hosea, for instance, the whole thing where he marries a woman and and so forth. The whole thing is, is about Israel's spiritual adultery. So it's not just about Israel's breaking the seventh commandment, but it's about Israel's breaking the first three commandments. Um, I didn't list testimonies, but you can, so you can add six there. Four, law summarized and clarified. Uh, Jesus gives us the law in two subsets by saying, you know, the first law is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. The second law is to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So he su summarizes the law. That's in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, when they ask him, how does the law read? One of the things Jesus is making clear, because the Old Testament actually says to love God with all your uh, 
heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus adds your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's making it very clear that you have to obey the law in your inner person, in your motivations, and your attitudes. Outward conformity is not enough, which is what the Pharisees were seeking. Okay, what Jesus came to bring is an inner change of heart and motivation in a new birth, in a new conversion, and in progressive sanctification. That's important. Um, then lastly, lastly, at least last that I'm going to list, is the entire Decalogue in the statutes are repeated and emphasized in all of the epistles. For instance, Paul in Romans 13, 19 says, If there is any law such as thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit murder, and he lists quite a few of the laws, and then he says they're all summed up in the two laws, uh, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. All right, let's move on uh, to the gospel purposes of the law. Galatians 3.24 says the law becomes our tutor to lead us to Christ. This is not a one-time only thing. This is all the time. Always you're supposed to be considering the law, and always it's supposed to be drawing you to grace-based instead of performance-based, gospel-based Christianity. Because if you really consider the law, every day you have broken, you shall have no other gods besides the Lord himself. You've broken every one of the laws every day. And the law is supposed to help us constantly be our tutor to lead us to the mercies of Christ. Sin has an incredible deceitfulness so incredible that the the most ungodly people are usually the most self-righteous people. People who are very little concerned about how sinful they are are in a very, very dangerous place. As a pastor, one of the things I know is the people who really get overly convicted by the messages are the people I don't have to worry about. (laughs) The people who aren't that moved by them, I really fret for them. And we live in a very word-hearted society where Pepsi adds life and get the Coke, or Coke adds life and Pepsi spirit and Dotson saves and, and uh, you know, like words are inflated and exaggerated all over the place. You know, buying a Lexus or something is going to bring you some sort of fulfillment and, and a supermodel. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, we live in a society where words are raped and murdered and abused all the time. You are constantly being bombarded by words that are misused and abused. So it makes it, you have to be extra careful to put the evaluation on the word that you need to put the evaluation on. In the first and foremost place where you should put some evaluation is, is God's commandments should lead you to a very tender heart and lead you to crying out for grace and seeking Christ. And you should have a little desperateness about you all the time. I don't just need a little bit more of God. I need, I, I need God in ways that I have, don't have 
good enough vocabulary skills to articulate and be well beyond what I can even imagine. So the gospel is our tutor to lead us to Christ because it helps us be delivered from what Hebrews calls the deceitfulness of sin. Sin has this way of seeming not, like not so bad. So, actually, see that point C there, uh, about quarter of the page, way down the second page here. Uh, Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill and empower. We've touched on this already. You can read about antinomianism in Matthew five seventeen through twenty, or and I should have put FF till to all because it goes all the way to Matthew five forty eight. But um, Jesus anticipates that the gospel will be twisted by a thing called antinomianism. And antinomianism is the idea that because we're not under law, we're under grace. So let me help you with that a little bit. So I, I said that was one of my goals today. When Paul talks about the law, he's using it in a couple different ways. So you've got to look for the context. But in most of Paul's writings, when he's talking about not being under law, but being under grace, what he's trying to talk about is not being under the way the Jews related to the law, which is to, to try to do it by your own power and initiative. He's talking about not being under performance-based Christianity. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments don't apply to the Christian at all. And that's how it gets interpreted today. Because people read Paul without understanding the context that Paul was first a Roman citizen, he was a second temple Jew, and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees who had encountered Christ and was rethinking the entire Old Testament world, both what the scriptures actually say and what the Jews in his day thought they said, and he was rethinking them all correctly in light of Christ. So when he's talking, especially in Galatians and Romans, about uh, if law could bring about perfection, he's talking about if, the, if an attitude of performing the law, if a lifestyle of trying to perform the law out of your own self-motivation, that's what he's trying to kill once and for all. That's why he says in Romans 10, I bear, I, I bear witness that, that my fellow Jews, if I, if I could be severed from Christ so that they might be saved, I would. I, have a pat, I bear witness that they have a love for God, but not in accordance with their knowledge. Because not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. The problem with the entire Old Testament started in, in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, when God told them that they had to obey all the commandments, and they said, we will obey them all. Instead of saying, we could never obey them all. We need to be saved by grace. And the whole purpose of God was over and over and over in his purpose in your life, when you try to approach God by self-righteousness, by performance, by I just got to fast more, I just got to read more, I just got to act more spiritual, whatever, you will fail, 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 fail you. And God will drive you to grace, to seeking grace, to, 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 being, to, to resting in, in his power and his resurrection. And that's the ongoing purpose of the law. Jesus came to empower you to fulfill the law, 
not to abolish it. Now, three more ongoing purposes of the law. I've already really touched on the first one. It's not just the tutor to lead us to Christ initially, but it's the tutor to continually lead us to Christ. It's to convict us of sin. It's to lead us to grace-based living. It's actually the most important work of the Holy Spirit. That's why the baptism in the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, because Pentecost was the festival that celebrated Moses bringing the law down from Mount Sinai. In, in, Pen, in the original Pentecost, which was a foreshadowing of the true Pentecost that happened in Acts 2, the law came down from the... From the uh, non-true Moses, you know, from, from the non-true, in other words, Moses was a foreshadowing of Jesus. And, uh, but in Pentecost, the law came down from the true Moses, Jesus, as Hebrews brings out and John emphasized when he did Hebrews chapter three, especially. So, um, secondly, it came down on tablets of stone Whereas in, in the true Pentecost, it's written on tablets of human hearts. It becomes your inner desire and motivation. The more you, that's why you need to be filled, refilled, and refilled with the power of the baptism in the Holy Spirit all the time. That's why uh, Christianity that doesn't have the baptism in the Holy Spirit is full of frustration and futility. You, you're not supposed to be able to do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is actually writing the law on tablets of human flesh. And instead of it commanding our sinful nature from the inside, uh, from the outside in, it, it begins to change our sinful desires from the inside out. When you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the more you stay worshiping and, and doing the things that is speaking in tongues and the things that cause you to draw near to the Lord and be filled with the Holy Spirit, the more you'll want to be pleasing to God and to be obedient to His law. And the more you'll actually be empowered to do so. Romans 7, what shall we say then if the, is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. Pen, you know, so with Pentecost, the more you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the more you'll be filled with contentment and thankfulness, which is the opposite of coveting. If you still have things like, I'm going to be fulfilled by a better car, better house, you know, better job, better career, more success in the eyes of men, you're yet not set free. That is the worst kind of bondage and death. You need the gospel and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Again, what Paul is saying is by trying to perform the works of the law, by the performance-based approach to the law, nobody could be justified. No one would measure up. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's amazing that God had to give the law so that we could have the knowledge of sin, because sin is so utterly deceitful 
that the more it has us, the less we see it. Hebrews 3.13 mentions hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, as Hebrews 10.25 also does. Number uh, two, the ongoing purpose is the law, wisdom, sanctification, and maturation. See, what, the, what God does through the Spirit of God and by the law is help you understand that the, wa- the law was considered the wisdom of God. The Jews were supposed to be the enlightened culture, taking the enlightenment that, that all the pagan nations in their stumbling around in darkness didn't have because of their superior law. And that's why, actually, if you study history, one of the things you'll notice for approximately 250 years before the coming of Christ, Judaism was growing among Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire, and more and more Gentiles were coming to synagogue. Some were staying God-fears. Others were converting to be Hellenistic Jews and getting circumcised even and becoming uh, learning Hebrew and, and so forth because they saw the decadence of the, of the Roman culture. One of the reasons fundamental churches are popular today is because people like the moralizing better than they like amoral living. But they need to go beyond the moralizing to Christ. If you notice, the the amoral liberal churches are shrinking out of existence. Most of them can barely keep their doors open. And the conservative churches are, are growing and growing, but in many cases they're growing like they were before the coming of Christ by moralizing and by you know, trying to live a more moral life, which people see innately is superior than just doing whatever the heck you want, which is destroying our culture. But you need to go beyond and receive Christ and be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the law. So, um, here's a quote from a a guy named A.W. Pink, whose book on the sovereignty of God we carry on the back shelves. Lots of his books are pretty good. The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present-day evangelist. He announces a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived. That is, many churchgoers are fatally deceived. For there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and their worldliness. Believe me, if you don't want to get delivered from your worldliness, you won't like heaven. (laughs) You'll decide not to stay. Now, lastly, the law is for society and for nations. God actually judges nations by their obedience or disobedience to his law. You can't keep murdering millions of babies and not not be destroyed by God. You can't keep stealing people's hard-earned money by, by an institution called the IRS and the Congress and not be judged by God. Because the the thou shall not steal applies to the government, too. They're not above it. God asked for 10% voluntarily 
to his church, and they ask for way more than 10% unvoluntarily because they think their temple is greater than God's temple. And whoever becomes your savior must become your master. And so if, they're gonna, if you're going to look to the government to solve problems as the Republicans and the Democrats do, then the government's going to become your tyrant. The law is the, is the law for societies. Romans 2, 14 through 23. I'm just going to read a little part of it. You should study the whole section. If you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself, this is what people who know the law are supposed to be, a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Do the people in your dorm come to you for wisdom? Do the people in your office come to you for wisdom? Do the people in your company say, wow, you got, I'd like to have a marriage like you guys have. I wish I had the character and integrity you have. Boy, I wish, I wish my kids were turning out the way your kids are turning out. If you're confident that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you therefore teach another, do you teach yourself? See, the law is, is the law of our nations. It's the wisdom of God. Now, I'm out of time to talk about antinomianism versus theonomy, and I'm not going to get even get into that. Uh, we've talked about it before. I've listed uh, three, three ramifications of it there. Uh, theonomy is the idea that God's law still applies for individuals, for churches, for cities, for counties, for states, and for, and for nations. And uh, uh, theonomy will, will always deliver you from performance-based extra-biblical legalism which is always the religion of the Pharisees then and now. That's why so much Christianity today is extra-biblical legalism. One of the things that hinders young people from coming to Christ is when you're brought up in extra-biblical legalism, you think whether you drink beer or smoke or stuff are the, are the real issues. And, oh, my pe the people I've grown up with are really godly because they don't steal and they have jobs and their parents stay married and so forth, but they're missing the zeal of God and the passion for God and the, and the deeper things of Christianity. And that's why so many of them reject it in their, when they become adults. So I wish I had more time for antinomianism versus theonomy. I, I, I hope to God you know deeply what that means by now. Uh, if not, get a hold of uh, any of the books of Rusash Rushduni, such as the Institutes of Biblical Law or, the, or Law and Society. But make sure you study a little bit about uh, antinomianism versus theonomy. Uh, ask John for recommendations from James Jordan and some of those guys on those subjects. Thank you. So we will reconvene in seven or eight minutes.